Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Humanly podcast. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Karen McElroy. Welcome along, Karen. Thanks for coming. Hi, Daniel. So good to have you here. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. We've always had some really awesome discussions, so I think I'm sure it'll be nice to share it with some some of your audience today. Yeah, it's been something that I've wanted to do for a while, and I've known you for many years. We actually first met at um, a college, uh, educational college in Brisbane many, many we moons did. ago. We did. You were one of my favorite tutors, I think, when I, had, <laughs> <laughs> when I was there as a supervisor. You are like my, my 2IC, which was very fun. Uh, yeah, we yeah. we got along really well, and we've stayed in contact all that time. So, it's, sure. um, it's been nice. We've had a lot of great conversations over the years, and every time we have a chat, I'm like, "Wow, I wish we actually recorded that discussion because I think it was really interesting." And um, here we finally are. Yes, true. <laughs> it's very true. All right. So, so. for everyone listening. Um, I'll just give you a really brief introduction, um, and then if there's anything that I miss or anything that you want to fill in, uh, you can uh, take the reins from there. But you're a naturopath, herbalist, mind-body counselor, you're a clinician, and you're also an educator, and you've um, been in the natural medicine industry for a number of years, and I've always really respected what you do and your perspective on health and the mind body spirit paradigm and i absolutely love the way you think so it's a real pleasure uh, and a great opportunity for me to to have you on here today so yeah thank you for being here and um you know if that introduction needs any more filling out please uh you can no fill that out if you need to (laughs) i think that's fine i guess just to say that yeah it's been in practice for something like 22 years now and I guess over those many years um, I've moved through many aspects of clinical practice and continue to evolve and grow I suppose as a clinician and as a healer and facilitator I guess is the way I like to see it as well because it's really just about facilitating and supporting each person's journey to health and wellness so um, yeah I think that's that's what I've come to enjoy and aspire to, I suppose, over the years, just continually educating myself and training in different areas to bring a much more well-rounded um, approach to medicine. So, yeah, that's probably a, a good a good place for us to start. And I think we're going to start talking about the sun today. Um, is that where you want to begin? Yeah, I think so. Mm. We were having an amazing conversation. Well, yeah, an amazing conversation, um, maybe a month or so ago, about how important the sun is. And I think it was around the time I actually wrote that blog on the vitamin D deception mm. um, about the fact that we're moving so far towards uh, the supplemental route of getting vitamin D. And I actually think we're missing the mark there. Um, vitamin D seems to be so popular now and you know everyone's got to be taking it. It's almost like the, the new turmeric or the, um, the new mm. uh, N-acetylcysteine or mm, you know, all true. the things that get f- very, they're very fad-like. And I think we're sort of falling into that trap with vitamin D um, yeah. because- Oh, sorry, you kick. No, no, please. I was just going to say, I think um, we're missing a lot if we're just thinking about vitamin D as a supplement that we take and we don't need to um, connect with the sun. There's so much more to the picture, don't you think? There is. There's an enormous amount. Um, 
I spoke actually in London a couple of years back at the ICNM on this topic itself as heliotherapy and the sun and the importance of it in health and healing. And I guess I always try to bring something new and novel to to my audience or whoever it is. And the sun's been a bit of a passion of mine for many years. And I think it's very true when we sort of quantify it as a vitamin D thing only. Vitamin D is one of many aspects that the sun uh, gives us in our body. Um, but if we, I mean, to be honest, I actually like to use vitamin D measures as an actual marker for sun exposure because I realise when people are low in vitamin D, there's a good chance they're low in light exposure. So we have that syndrome that I like to call malillumination, which I think I've ripped that off someone else basically, but it's like malnutrition, but we have malillumination, meaning we're just not getting enough light anymore. And when you think about it, um, as a species, you know, we've, we've evolved um, with the sun on our bodies um, and living and working outside for, you know, for the most of history um, until very recently, historically, you know, we have been exposed to sunlight and we're exposed to those changing seasons as well of natural daylight levels as well. And they, all of these things have been shown to drive um, those evolutionary adaptations for humans. So I think, you know, we've, we've managed to find vitamin D through the Ricketts uh, syndrome and found this molecule that was responsible for that that was from light. But, of course, there's multifaceted uh, aspects of light and sunlight in particular that affect physiology right across the board. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sort of sun lover, which is a bit ironic because I'm very fair skinned and <laughs> I can easily get too much. Um, but yeah, so I'd love to dive into some of those things. Yeah. It's a, it's amazing when we think of things like rickets and we say, Oh, well, it's just a vitamin D deficiency. It's just a single vitamin, which is causing that. And if we actually think about that from a, a broader perspective or a more holistic perspective, it's actually a disease that's manifesting because we're not getting enough light mm. and our body's basically screaming out to us saying, you're not in the sun enough. You need to get out in the open, expose your body to the sun. And if you don't, you're going to run into a lot of uh, more serious problems down the track. And mm. obviously rickets is very serious, but there's so many other things that vitamin D um, is important for and sun exposures for. Mm, mm. And when you think about modern humans, I mean, for many people, particularly city dwellers, uh, they can wake up in a house uh, with artificial light, drive in their car to work, you know, in, inside glass windowed car, straight into a building, stay in the building all day, drive home again. And they might not get actually, even if the building has some light coming through the windows, you'd probably be aware that glass actually blocks UVB light. So we're not getting full spectrum light through glass. So, um, yeah, people can easily miss out on that full spectrum light each and every day, you know, and maybe they get a little bit on the weekends or a bit if they walk at lunchtime. But, you know, that's huge difference. And I think actually even in terms of that, the, um, the amount of light that we get, I, I found those statistics really fascinating because basically – uh, I think it's about we get sort of like I think we can make on a sunny day um, like it's the is it lux I think is the term they use to identify how much light we get um, light exposure and yeah I think it's like in an indoor environment it's about 200 lux equivalent you know from lights and um, outside it's like thousands, and even on a cloudy day, I think it's still um, thousands. So it's <laughs> we're just getting very little um, indoors, and not realizing that we're missing out on this commodity that's hugely important. Yeah, it's it's amazing when we think about how disconnected we've become to the sun, and we've got all these wonderful. Uh, public health initiatives warning people of the uh, detrimental effects of too mm. much sun, but mm. nowhere is anyone talking about the beneficial effects of the sun. Yeah. And I think we're treading on dangerous ground yeah. 
when we're only talking about the detrimental effects and then the only beneficial effect is the vitamin D aspect. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's basically I just found what I was trying to, to remember there. It was 30 minutes outside is equivalent to more than 10 hours of indoor in terms of light exposure. So, you know, that's why I really encourage all my patients to just try and do a sun break at lunchtime, you know, eat their lunch outside. Not only do they maximise vitamin D synthesis then, um, but they're going to get that full spectrum light, which is going to really boost that light exposure. Um, Because if we're not getting that, I mean, you'd be well aware of the circadian rhythms and the brain chemistry and everything that occurs um, with light, you know, the dark and light cycles are one of the primary circadian sort of set points along with the feeding and fasting signals. So those two signals... um, are the most influential on creating all those, you know, those set points, I suppose, that central clock in the brain and then all those peripheral clocks that occur in the different organs as well um, are all taking their cues from that light exposure and dark exposure. So as we know, people these days are in front of lights in the evening, not getting the melatonin, uh, the dark exposure as much, and then, going not getting that full spectrum light in the day either to really maximize cortisol in the day so we get this kind of blunted effect uh, across both ends of that spectrum aside from obviously eating into the evening as well which is another whole discussion probably but yeah so I think it's it's really simple but we just miss miss this really um important part of of health you know and I think um modern humans are just you know a bit stupid when it comes to that. And I have chickens, Daniel, and <laughs> they like to sunbake. And you probably, if you've got a dog or a cat and listeners would know, uh, they like to lie in the sun and when they've had enough, they go and get in the shade. But my chickens, after they've been, if we've had a few rainy days and the sun comes out, they actually come and lie down and spread their wings across the ground and get every feather exposed to the sun. And that's how they make their vitamin D among other things, um, which then goes into the eggs. That's why free-range chickens are the only eggs that contain vitamin D. The battery hens don't actually contain vitamin D. So there's just so many cool things about the sun and, and those natural rhythms and natural creatures, and I think humans have kind of separated themselves so far from, from that that we're um, shooting ourselves in the foot and creating all sorts of health issues in the process. So. Yeah, absolutely. I was having a a think about this the other day in regards to why the sun is so bad for so many people in Australia. And I was thinking that it's probably kind of like the world's self-defense mechanism. So us fair-skinned people like you and I, um, but probably not really we were never really meant to live in Australia. We mm. were probably meant to live closer um, towards the the North Pole rather than down um, mm. south in Australia, where the sun's so uh, strong. We haven't got the the, um, the melanin or the pigment in our skin to provide that protection. So it's almost like the world or Mother Nature saying, uh, "If you're not meant to live here." Then you're not going to be meant, not going to live here because you're going to be getting exposure to too much sun, and it's going to cause a lot of deleterious health effects mm. to you. And I, I was like, yeah, maybe we are living in the wrong part of the world. Yeah, definitely. Maybe we do yeah. need to consider more than just the, the fact that the sun is to blame. It, it could be that we're to blame for living in the wrong part. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up melanin because that's actually such an important aspect of the role that sun does play uh, in our body and melanin being such an important pigment. Um, And I I know you had Gerald Pollack on recently. I don't know if he talked about melanin in his – I didn't – I half listened to it, so I didn't get to hear the full thing yet. Did he talk about melanin or not? No, we didn't go down that path. So essentially, you know, melanin um, is – these novel new theories about it basically in terms of it being able to capture light, you know, and providing about 90% of the cell's energy. Um, So this sort of really flies in the face of the idea that, you know, that we, the whole 
uh, Krebs cycle, mitochondrial energy production that's kind of can't possibly make enough energy for what the body needs. So um, these awesome new researchers have been tracking the way these um, chromophores and these pigmented molecules, which include melanin but also hemoglobin, and there's a few other ones that can capture the light and then transport that to the cell and much the way the water is split um, into positive and negative electrons making that fourth phase water, that's how we get light into the water of the cell as well through these um, chromophores, so these pigmented molecules. So it's melanin's the, one of the most important ones. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if you've looked into any of that stuff, but when they compare the, the differences and similarities between chlorophyll and melanin, Melanin can do every single thing that chlorophyll does um, plus more because it, it occurs outside the cell. It also can be active during the nighttime um, and it reforms a water molecule and produces high, ele- high energy electrons, which um, chlorophyll doesn't do. So there's so many things about melanin that I think we're really just beginning to understand. And it, it does make me kind of curious why we don't, you know, people like us who don't have as much melanin as someone with dark skin um, and and the energy production potential must be higher potentially. I don't know how it fully works because I think it's still in its uh, gestational phase, this research, but I find this so fascinating. Well, it's possible. Like if you've got darker skin, say like the Indigenous people of Australia, they've got the darker skin so that they can spend – 90% of the day mm. out in the sun and they're not going to get damaged. Mm. Whereas when we have people with lighter skin living in the same environment, we can only be in the sun for minutes and mm. we start to burn mm. and then we've got to hide in the shade. So we're not getting that full day-long sun exposure. Whereas if we were living in somewhere like England, we could be out in the sun all day charging our batteries mm. and we wouldn't get burnt. Mm. So I guess it's like this innate inbuilt mechanism that allows you to have a particular skin tone so you can be out in the sun charging your batteries Mm. all day without there being a a deleterious effect yeah because even chlorophyll i know um you know when we eat that chlorophyll pigment when you eat green things has been shown to also activate mitochondrial function so it's not. It's quite weak in comparison to, say, hemoglobin or melanin, melatonin as well, and DHA. There's quite a few compounds that are all potentially um, involved with this cellular energy energy pathway. That's like this solar powered kind of thing, and it makes sense. I mean, when I, whenever I originally learned about photosynthesis in plants, and and you know, we had this idea: oh, well, animals aren't capable of doing that. It just didn't make sense to me that we'd have this massive solar, you know, big sun in the sky that's responsible for all of life on Earth, but somehow humans are separate to that and we can't utilise the energy. <laughs> we can we go ahead and make these smart, you know, solar panels and batteries and create energy, but our little human body, which, you know, as we would be well aware, uh, is this infinite intelligent, you know, biological system that, blows my mind every single day when I think about it and work with patients, you know, that there's no capacity for it to transmit light into energy. It just seems ridiculous. And now we're discovering, of course, that's true, that there is all these mechanisms. We're way more clever than a plant at being able to do that. Um, So, yeah. So it's good that you talked about the water thing because that's that's pivotal to understanding how that fourth phase of water is responsible for energy production and then that you know feeds back into the the light uh, the uv light and then all these chromophore molecules and pigmented molecules that can work in with that so i just yeah i i think it's so so interesting and so important um that we that you know all this research is being done so it's fascinating to me yeah, like uh, probably a month or so ago, I remember you saying to me that we're photosynthetic beings and I was this little light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I think we probably are. But I wasn't sure how everything fit into place. Mm. And then I had that conversation with Professor Pollock and I was like, 
oh, now it all makes perfect sense. We really are photosynthetic beings and it's got everything to do with the structured water Mm. and the energy and the frequency that the light gives us and structures our cells and we're basically just a big battery. Mm. And it's interesting because 90% of our light intake actually comes through our eyes. You know, so even though we talk about skin and getting skin exposed, which, you know, 90% of it is actually absorbed through our eyes and so it shows you how important that is. But, of course, when people are wearing glasses, you know, as you know, it's an obsession these days with people wearing sunglasses. Um, and I get kind of a little bit irate when I see parents with little kids with sunglasses on because I'm like, no, it's child abuse. You know, take the glasses off, let that child get its light, you know, light dose today. Um but yeah, we're blocking that light exposure, and and even normal glasses like reading glasses uh, also block full spectrum. So usually, I get my patients who wear glasses to when they do their little sun break is to take them off and let their eyes fully absorb the light. They don't have to look at the sun, obviously. Uh, that's not not a good thing, except for early in the morning. Um, that whole sun gazing new fad. It's been around for a while now, but I. I partake in the early morning sun exposure through the eyes by looking at the sun at the very low point. It's quite safe to do so then, but you're getting that beautiful light energy. And I do find on a morning if I'm a bit tired and I go for my walk and I gaze at the sun as it's rising, my energy just within minutes I feel like I start charging up. It's quite fascinating. Um, and on a grey day, I just don't get the opportunity to, and it just I don't feel that same energy boost that would normally happen from from sun gazing early in the morning. So, you know, we know that cortisol kicks in, like all those mechanisms, but I feel like there's something more like on this other pathway that we've been talking about um, happening as well. So, yep, there's so much here. Over the last probably. 18 months for me, I've been coming to a, not a conclusion, but this ongoing thought process that quite often what we hold as common belief or common understanding or fact, usually the opposite is true. So when we're told that the sun is uh, bad for your eyes and you should be wearing sunglasses and you should never look into the sun because it's really damaging for your eyes. Um, you know, many people take that as as fact, but if we think back to what we did as hunter-gatherers or mm. just tribal or nomadic people, we would be waking up and, and watching the sunrise and we would be um, watching the sunset and we'd probably do it with our friends or, or close loved ones you know, uh, at the beach or on the top of a hill or a mountain somewhere watching the beauty of that happen because we didn't have TVs and we didn't have computers or iPhones or anything. So it was a form of entertainment for us and we were drawn to do it. But now we've been scared off doing it and I mm. think we're missing out on something really important there. Yeah, it's uh, one of my favourite sayings is that, you know, when we're born, we're not born with a pair of sunglasses in our hand, you know, ready to put on to protect us from, you know, this this terrible environment that we're being born into like nature you know it's like we we've kind of got ability to adapt and obviously like you mentioned before we're not native to this country in terms of you know when I look at aboriginal people their skin is dark for a reason because it is intense light here um and we need to be mindful and certainly in periods you know times of high glare and the beach or on the water or snow or anything like that sunglasses can protect your eyes from damage but for the most part we should be able to walk around in an everyday you know day-to-day life um, without needing sunglasses on and people have become so sensitive now to the light that they'll go oh I have to I can't even wear them my eyes squint and I used to wear sunglasses um, not heaps but I did wear them and I trained myself off them. It took a little while to get used to it, but now I, I don't ever really feel like I need them unless I am at the beach or something like that when it's really glary and the sun's hitting the sand and, you know, you get that um, reflection. So, yeah, people are often saying they need them, but it's just because they've lost that adaptive capacity, which like anything in our body, if we sort of protect it and 
cushion it too much, we lose that that kind of resilience and um, strength, that innate, you know, those sort of mechanisms are so important. And I like the fact that you talked about, you know, historically and hunter-gatherers because I do most of the time when I think about things, I'm always going back to going historically, what did we do? Modern humans are pretty stupid for the most part. We've gotten so clever in some things, but we've kind of lost the plot with other things. Um, and, you know, through we've always sort of the sun has always been worshipped, I think, in pretty much every culture. There's sun gods and there's different sorts of um, spiritual understanding about the sun and light itself being uh, a commodity that actually supports spiritual growth as well. You know, we talk about light and dark and you know the light is used in so much of our common language as well um in terms of that through every tradition pretty much the sun was revered in some way so i think you know it's it's interesting that we've gone the opposite now the sun is like it's almost like you know some kind of demon or something that we have to be protect ourselves from this evil thing that's going to kill us and age our skin and give us skin cancer and all of that. So, yes, it's good to just take a dip into history to level up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. And I did a lot of study into using light as a healing modality. So for many years I based my entire clinic around using energy as um as a method of healing. So using low intensity or low level laser therapy and also using things like skinar therapy and physio key therapy where we put energy in to the system to create change. And I remember learning about the uh, physiology um, and the mechanisms of how laser therapy works. And yeah, we've got these chromophores in basically every single cell which are there to absorb light and then the laser is able to activate cytochrome C oxidase in the um, mitochondria and that produces energy. And I was always under that impression was how it works. But yeah, from speaking with uh, Professor Pollock, he was basically saying, well, the sun, the, the energy and the frequency has an effect on the cells which then impacts the mitochondria and then the mitochondria uses that frequency to produce ions to create a, um, a negative charge in the cell, I think it was, and then it acts like a, a basically a, our cells are like a battery. Mm. Yeah. And I was thinking, wow, like <laughs> yeah, we, we have a, a receptor in every single cell to absorb light. Of, of course, we're light beings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just so fascinating, isn't it, that it's taken us this long to understand. Um, but, you know, if you think about all those, the old sun sun clinics and things they used to have in like the Swiss Alps and people would go up and they would do sunbathing as part of their healing mechanisms and that classic heliotherapy was that exactly that. We've seemed to have lost that. And, of course, I guess now we're using modern photo, phototherapy things with like you said lasers uv radiation uh or sorry you know those fluorescent lamps different sorts of lamps that give you those different spectrums of light um and we know that you know there's different color frequencies for wound healing or anti-inflammation and stuff like that so they're starting to learn a lot more about those spectrums and applying different ones I guess I, in a way I still always come back to, again, if we're getting full spectrum light, our body's getting all of the ones it needs and we'll, you know, those little chromophores, like you said, will trap the particular light that they need. Um, it's interesting, the cryptochromes as well. I don't know if you've heard about those ones, but they are basically working with that circadian clock as well around um, feeding and fasting and, and metabolism. So they absorb the blue light. Um, and they make us eat. Uh, so, like, basically, it's like a summer light exposure. So, if we're exposed to blue light in winter, for example, um, through screens, etc., it actually tricks our body into thinking it's day, like it's light, 
and it's it's summer, which of course is, as we know, we're meant to eat in summer and store up for the lean winters, which don't happen anymore, obviously. But it's like building fat reserves so you can, you know, survive the winter famine. So these cryptochromes, um, which pick up the blue spectrum of light and carry it throughout the body and then deliver that signal to all these different cells that control metabolism. So it's um, that's part of one of the other reasons why this, it's sort of, I think it's increases insulin resist- release and storage of carbs into fat, et cetera. Um, so when you think about modern people, that's kind of like they're doing that all the time now and wondering why we've got obesity epidemics and all these metabolic problems. So that was just another thing that I'd throw in there. Yeah, you're so right when you talk about the full spectrum of light. So we've got all these wonderful research papers that show you know, 610 nanometers is good for this and 810 is good for this and 904 is really good for this particular um, effect. And we're trying to single out the specific um, wavelengths of light. But in reality, all you have to do is walk outside and get exposure to the sun. You get the full spectrum of all of these wavelengths, which I'm sure each one of those specific wavelengths has an effect in the body. And then as a cumulative effect, um, the effect of that would be similar to like herbal medicine where the sum of the effect of the sum of the parts um, is nowhere near as much as the effect of the whole yeah. uh, spectrum. So, yeah, I think even like laser therapy is probably a little bit reductionist in its approach, even though it is quite an effective therapy. Yeah, true. I mean, I think it's still great if we can use non-invasive, you know, like, well, low safe, I guess they're slightly invasive, but, you know, non-pharmaceutical, non-substance-based therapies, you know, I think that's um, really important progression in terms of our um, therapeutic base, I suppose, as in modern medicine. I'm excited to see the development of light therapy because I do feel and there's multiple, like you said, the scanner and other sorts of therapies that are using energy. And I think we're starting to understand that the biochemical view of life is a little bit sort of defunct, uh, debunked, I guess, now by the, the electrical or the quantum view of life. And we're sort of seeing that above the chemical signaling um, is another stimulus, which is usually electrical and magnetic, so the electromagnetic stimulus that occurs through um, different mechanisms then stimulates the release of molecules and, and the biochemical response that we can measure. And we've been sort of addicted to biochemical substance, you know, measured material sort of aspects of the human physiology when we're now starting to get technology that's allowing us to see the energetic, you know, top-down kind of um, impact on on the body and, and what those signaling pathways and we can start working at that much higher level rather than mucking around downstream with, you know, the substances and the, the physiology of, um, you know, hormones or whatever it is that we're looking at. They're all important but I think we need to have this holistic approach where we can understand uh, all those aspects. Yeah, the biochemical approach is so reductionist i used to think it was everything understanding (laughs) nutritional biochemistry and all these little pathways but in reality it is i think you're like that when i first met you daniel (laughs) (laughs) you've seen the light excuse the pun (laughs) but yeah we all go on that journey and for sure we're, we're you know it's um we're trained in a certain mechanism i guess it's a good thing we could talk a brief segue around that at the moment like looking at modern naturopathic medicine and mainstream medicine as well like it's it's very much reductionist in terms of that biochemical bias and so it's uh i think understanding that there's other stuff going on we really need to progress our thinking uh, to see that there is a whole quantum and electrical sort of basis to life and we should be really at the cutting edge of that, in my opinion, because we are the holistic clinicians and the holistic paradigm of human health needs to be factoring that in. 
uh, and not just slavishly following the, you know, the the biochemical, the evidence-based kind of, you know, protocols of of measuring uh, outcomes that are material only, you know. So I don't know what you want to say about that. Well, I think one thing that was I'm sticking in my mind was the conversation we were having earlier about what did we used to do a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago? What are we missing out on? Um, and I think we had it pretty well worked out a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. We were very holistic. We ate good food. We were out in the sun. We were doing all the things that our body needed to to stay fit and healthy and we didn't have this epidemic of chronic disease happening um and it was really interesting i was listening to a podcast a while ago with this professor um his name's michael hamblin and he does a lot of research on light and he was saying you know what is one thing that humans don't get exposure to anymore and he was saying it's fire Mm. he's like we used to sit around fire and we used to come together as a group in a family unit and we would cook our food over fire and we would sit around fire and tell stories and we'd laugh and connect and even sometimes just sit and do nothing and just watch the fire mm. and it's something that we don't have anymore so you know it's the same with naturopathy where now at this point where we once had it all worked out I think and we're moving into this um, paradigm where everything's got to have you know, a biochemical pathway, everything's got to have an explanation. And sure, I think integrated medicine is important, but there's a lot that we do as naturopaths and um, integrated medicine professionals that has an effect, but it's some of these effects are not for us to know. Mm. We may never know how these things work. And, um, you know, that's always been belittled, I think, by sort of mainstream science is that if you can't tell me how it works then therefore it doesn't exist Mm. and i i think we run the risk of seriously diluting naturopathy and and natural medicine to the point where we are well i think we're fast on a road to becoming um basically green pharmacists and that scares me Mm. yeah there's a certain arrogance i think to that that what you're just saying there around well if we can't work it out, then it mustn't exist. As if, like, we modern humans somehow <laughs> have got the the smartest brains doing uh, all the thinking. And if we haven't worked it out, then therefore, you know. But as we know, along the line, we keep finding out things that we previously didn't know to be true. And I think the classic, you know, adage of science really is that it's never final. There's no final word with science because it's an evolutionary process of continual questioning, hypothesizing and, you know, and trying to prove or validate. And therefore it's like what we know is what we know right now, but we should always keep that open mind about um, what we may not yet know, you know, and what is probably there. And I think that's where I just come back to this, you know, you can't really go past this, this healing power of nature, you know, this vital force that we we kind of have it as the touchstone of what we do within natural health um, paradigms. Um, yet, you know, I think it, it's not really followed as much as it should be. And the longer I'm in practice, the more I kind of do less, if that makes sense, because it's sort of like the more I just look at the body and I just think I'm fascinated about it, I'm fascinated at the symptoms that it produces and really starting to see that every symptom that's manifesting in someone's body is just an attempt to heal and self-regulate by that that you know intelligent system so whether it's a fever or whether it's mucus or whether it's a cough or whether it's a rash or you know whatever it is that we, we call a symptom which is an inconvenience to us because it's often a discomfort but they're all just you know a sign of an imbalance and an attempt to regain balance and to restore that homeostasis you know so you know the more I see that it's almost like I just want to support the body to do what it's already trying to do in its healing mechanism and really teaching my patients to see it that way and to love their body and to support you know that natural um, 
innate intelligence to do what it's trying to do instead of just, you know, suppressing, 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 which is what most of mainstream medicine does, but also even a lot of what we can do can still follow that line. We need to remove, you know, suppress the inflammation or we need to do whatever it is. Um, So when you're looking for that root cause, which is where we should always be looking, I guess, certainly the way I'm like a dog with a bone. So I I keep going until I find it. And usually I end up in the realm of mind body. (laughs) Like it's, it's never in the physical, you know, it's always coming from something far deeper and higher and and more subtle in terms of emotional state or, you know, nervous system stress. Um, Even spiritual crises, you know, my opinion, depression is just a spiritual crisis. So it's a fairly, blanket statement and I probably could do another whole podcast on that but um yeah anyway I'm raving on here but yeah it's just I think we can see that what we really need to be doing is continually evolving and I suppose if I had to sum up my way of practicing and my um the thing that inspires me most is this marriage of science and spirit you know and and trying to continually let science evolve full circle and we're back to the realm of spirit again you know back to the realm of um the subtle you know the the energetic the the um that mind body aspect so if we stop at the physical we're really we're only really taking a very small chunk of what's going on yeah and i think we are stopping at the physical now more and more because and I, I just want to make it clear that I'm not saying that um, you know integration is bad. I think integration is very important. But if we stop at the physical and we never are allowed to have the freedom to ponder or the freedom to discuss possibilities, um, we are going to lose the magic mm. of what makes naturopathy special. So I, I mean, I didn't even study that long ago, to be honest with you. I think it was 2005 when I started. Mm. And even then, we were encouraged to talk about, um, you know, different paradigms and understandings of healing and, and challenging our beliefs and talking about things that maybe weren't so commonly accepted and it was a really beautiful experience going through the degree at that time. And I think I was probably at the tail end of, of um, that era. But, you know, these days, the students that um, that are coming through and the naturopaths that are being produced don't have any of that. Like I get really concerned when I'm talking to recent graduates or students at the end of their degree and I come in and I start talking about terrain theory or I start coming in and talking about um, hum- the, the body humors or Herring's law of cure or the foundational principles of natural medicine. They sort of look at me weird. Mm. Like, what are you talking <laughs> about? What, yeah. are, what are you going on about? And um, I can't believe that that has all just been bred out of our um, education system in uh, such a short amount of time mm, it's true you know and it's interesting I've been pondering this week as well thinking about my obsession my other obsession other than the sun is water um, and that's why I've been following you know, Gerald Pollack's work for a few years now and, and also Tom Cowan and you know there's so many people doing this really great work on water but it made me realize you know this universal substance and I, I have a a far greater respect and understanding now for homeopathy and fluorescences and things like that in terms of their ability to to penetrate just simple water, you know, and even an infusion. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like going, there's magic in that tea that's not just the, the chemical substance of what, you know, which phytochemicals are in there from the plant. And that's where we've stopped, you know, instead of going we originally knew that there was not just sort of the subtle qualities of essential oils or, um, you know, those volatile compounds that, that have you smells and fragrances and, and also, you know, what is, what is also being transmitted in the energy of that plant. Um, and, you know, we know flower essences carry some sort of magical signature. We don't really understand how they work, but it's like the doctrine of signatures as well. 
<clears throat> you know, is is part of this understanding that this whole big complex uh, nature, you know, this this world of nature that is so interconnected and has so much kind of wisdom um, that's just there. And this, yeah, I just think it's fascinating. And so that's made me really understand now how this ability for water to carry substance and to carry subtle energy signatures and frequencies that then our body and our cellular water can now receive that. You know, they're receiving this subtle uh, frequency and it, it just makes so much more sense. I don't think I ever understood <laughs> understood homeopathy and fluorescences quite like I do now, you know, in terms of how I was taught it many years ago. Um, so that that's kind of something I've been vibing with at the moment as well. Yeah, because those paradigms, they don't meet anywhere. If you learn the, the um, sort of mainstream understanding of how the body works and then you go and learn things like flower essences or homeopathy, uh, much like you, it never really resonated with me until recently mm. when I was learning that the body actually is just made of essentially structured water. Mm. And then I was like, uh-huh. This makes sense as to why people were using water like homeopathy to heal disease because they were just putting frequencies into the water mm. and that was then coming into our body, into our system, and it was changing the frequency of our internal water structures and we were yeah. getting profound healing. Yeah. Um, and we're so far removed from that now and I think it's it's such a shame to to lose these um these aspects of, of naturopathy, which is, you know, naturopathy was homeopathy, was flower essences, mm. was herbal medicine, was acupuncture, was massage, was mm. nutrition. It, it was all of those things. And now it's very much just, oh, it's nutrition and herbs and that's it. Mm. And it's, even it's when you shame. look at nutrition as well, like when we look at the, because like, I'm lucky enough to live on acreage and grow lots of food, as you know, um, and when I go and pick something from my garden, and, you know, I, I know obviously it's going to have a high nutritional content, you know, high vitamin levels and haven't been denatured from storage and, you know, all the normal things of processing of food. But there's something else that I, I can pick up on. It's a frequency. It's a vibrational, you know, signature of those plants that I, I can't measure, you know, but I can only measure through a, a felt sort of subjective experience, you know, but it's not something that, I've got the capacity or the tools. I'm sure there is, you know, there's certain sorts of photography and things that can pick up, you know, those energies of plants and so on. But but I just love thinking about that because even when we use plants and we use food historically, I think we had a far deeper respect and reverence for, you know, all that sort of stuff, like what the spring greens after the long winter. It wasn't just that we're getting vitamins in something green. It was bringing like a cleansing and, a, you know, there was something about the vibrational force of that new spring growth that would have been understood to be offering a tonic to our cells and our water that was depleted after, you know, long winters of stored uh, processed food, you know, like or, or just preserved food rather. So it's just it's sort of interesting, like you said, because it's we're just looking at everything now through just the biochemical, phytochemical sort of pathways of, analysis of what it's doing um but we're far, we're missing all the stuff that we originally knew but i do believe you know science is catching up and we're starting to get a lot of information and technology now that can actually measure these subtle sort of frequencies and i think we're going to in the next you know probably decade or two start to have a big full circle you know back to understanding that there is multi-layered um freak you know like the this more than just the physical there's multi-layers there with all our remedies and and things like touch like you said massage i mean there's so much to be said for what is that substance and that warmth process that occurs when two humans come into contact even as healing you know patient to practitioner what is that substance that's generated in rapport and connection? And, you know, there's so much there that's that's 
it's a bit ethereal, but it, it's so important, you know, when you get a good connection with someone, what is already happening in a healing space, you know, before you've done anything just from presence and and kindness and care and, and emotional connection. So, you know, we could go on all day about all these subtle aspects, but I think it's um, it's just it's very cool to be having this conversation, Daniel. <laughs> I'm really, really digging it. Um, yeah. Well, I think it needs to be had. Yeah. And, you know, for most people that know me, I was always the biochemical pathway guy and <laughs> there must be an answer for everything and we must understand how this pathway affects the other pathway. And, you know, I'm at the point now where I don't even know if these pathways actually exist <laughs> because how do we how do we actually prove that that's what happens in the body? There's no way for us to observe these things. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at things like nutrition, for example, is it really the fact that there are these things called vitamins in our food which come into our body and go into these pathways and exert a certain physiological effect? Mm. Or is it the fact that this food or this plant that was growing in nature that was exposed to the wind and the rain and the insects and the mm. earth and the light and everything else put energy into that plant it's vibrating at a certain frequency. We eat the plant, we absorb the structured water from that plant and it's exerting a frequency effect on the rest of the, the water in our body. It's probably more the latter rather than, than the biochemical nutritional pathways mm. because um, well, I think it's, it's very hard. You know, I do. I think it's sort of I think that's all there but it's we're doing ourselves a disservice to limit our thoughts and understanding to that and our ability to appreciate whatever the therapy we're using um, is lost because we're, you know, we're keeping it to that limited understanding. And, you know, we know that you could take a vitamin C tablet with just ascorbic acid or you could pick an orange off the tree and squeeze that. They're not the same thing. You know, like they might both contain vitamin C in terms of what we can measure, but we know there's something far more useful in the food, in the plant, you know. So um, that's why whole food and, and a good living diet is always never, you know, is always going to be superior than trying to have a, a dead diet with supplements. You know, we know that doesn't work. Um, yeah. Well, that's why I've had such an issue lately with the whole um, f uh, field of supplementation because if you look at herbal medicine, we know that there's synergy and uh, the all the thousands of chemicals in that particular plant all need to be present to exert a certain physiological response. Mm. But we're asked, what is the single nutrient, uh, the single chemical in that herb that has the effect? Well, there isn't one, it's all of them together. But then for nutrition, for some reason, we think, well, you know, it's just vitamin C out of the orange when it's exactly the same thing as herbal medicine. It's that synergistic effect. So it's it's also a thing called the food matrix. Mm. If you start looking up the food matrix, they have no idea how it works. Mm. They have no idea how all these chemicals interact together to exert a, a certain response or effect in the body. So nutrition's heading down a very dangerous path in my opinion as well when we start saying, oh, well, we're just going to provide a single nutrient to affect this pathway or that pathway. Um, we really, to be honest, I don't think we really have any idea what we're doing when we're providing single nutrients because it's just not the, the way that the body was uh, designed to respond to things. Mm. It was designed to respond to whole foods and, and plants. Yep, it's very true. And I think even with that, just to speak to the vitamin D thing again as well, because, you know, we know that the vitamin D produced in the skin lasts two to three times longer than the, you know, the synthetic or the, the vitamin D supplement rather. Um, and the D from the skin, it's 100% of it's bound to the binding protein, whereas only about 60% is bound from the supplemental D3. So there's a whole range of issues with supplements compared to what our body naturally can make you know and we never get it 
diff- toxicity from sun exposure. Um, I'm sure you're probably aware if you did the vitamin D tour. I don't know. I haven't read your blog post. Sorry to say, uh, must do That's that. That's right. Uh, but um, you know the those pre vitamin D three compounds um, that are really photosensitive. Basically, when further sunlight exposure that's in excess of what the body needs, it actually converts them into those biologically inert compounds that prevent us from getting toxicity from vitamin D and from the sun. And they actually turn into those photo products, I think, what is the lumesterol? I think there's a couple of different ones. But they actually, um, that are sort of broken down, have been found to be protective against cancer. You know, so they're like these anti-cancer compounds that we can make when we have sun exposure that's more than we need and there's a risk of, you know, it's like our body goes, yes, well, if we keep getting sun, we may get sun damage, sun cancer, you know, dysplasia in the cells. So therefore let's convert those compounds into some anti-cancer compounds that will neutralize that. So it's just another example of this intelligence that we don't need to kind of dumb down. You know, we can give supplemental D thinking that we're covering that, but it's never as good as what we'll do by being in the sun, you know. So I'm not saying I don't I don't say that we should never give vitamin D supplements because I do certainly still use them in, in some cases for a short-term boost, you know, when I know someone's very low. Uh, and but generally speaking, I really try and get everyone to just get the sun happening. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, important or uh, interesting point that you brought up about the um, effects of vitamin D and cancer. In that blog post, I know you haven't read it, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, don't, feel, <laughs> don't, don't feel so guilty about that. Well, no, I'm, um, I'm curious to read it. I just, you know, it's probably on my to-do list of thousands of Oh, yeah, things. yeah. Got lots to do, but... Um, the I found this paper that basically found that this um, if you get vitamin D from sun exposure, it has this protective effect against cancer that the vitamin D supplements don't have. Mm-hmm. So it's got basically nothing to do with that number that you're seeing on the page when you do the test mm. and everything to do with mechanisms that we don't understand yeah yeah i think we know like with most things we know a tiny percentage of what's really going on and it's that's why i'm saying i just have such reverence for this this incredible system that we call our body you know um and i don't like using the word machine or anything because it's it's far in excess of of anything i can even (laughs) define really it's quite a complex interconnected you know frequency biological system i don't know how to define it but but yeah no and i think it's true like uh, you know i guess we all i still i certainly still use supplements and things in clinic and herbs and do all that but i'm it's always for me a compliment to what i can always already try and do and we know that certain people are not going to do what we want them to do and this is the problem with modern life people are so disconnected from from those natural processes, from nature, from, you know, healthy living that they just won't do what they need to do to stay healthy. So there's a, I think there's a place for that uh, as well, but it's not my ideal for sure. Um, it's far better to get no, I, people, you know. I, I agree. Mm. I completely agree that, Nutrients have their place and supplements have their place, but it's not its not the end point. Mm. And I find that many clinicians and um, people learning about natural medicine, they think, oh, well, what's the supplement for this condition? Or what's the supplement mm. for that condition? And then they provide the supplement and that's where the treatment stops. Mm. But in reality, that um, nutritional supplement should be just the very beginning of the uh the healing journey and the healing process. People just get the supplements, they take them for months and months and if not years and they never do any other uh, form of of healing, whether it be anything to do with mind, body or spirit. 
Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, you have patients all the time that go, oh, you know, just need something for this. Haven't you got something? Isn't there some herb? Or <laughs> And you're like, yeah, well, I have got things, but that's I'm doing you a disservice if I just give you that. Like you actually need to do X, Y, Z, you know, whatever we've worked out is the underlying issue. We need to deal with that, you know, and um, – and everyone's at a different point. So that's why as a clinician we have to be somewhat of a chameleon, you know, changing all the time to meet each person's at what point they are on their journey because we can't expect everyone to be where we want them to be straight off, you know. And so it's it's a challenge to to do that every day. Everyone's unique and really having that reverence for each human being, you know, as a fully autonomous, you know, individual unique complexity uh is also what makes you know my work so rewarding I guess to be able to see that and not just see them as a bunch of cells eliciting symptoms you know so that's why I don't treat everyone with the same issue with the same way you know so it's um it's far better to have that truly individualized treatment I mean we talk about individualized treatments but I think for the most part uh we just chuck a whole lot of protocols at people. I'm meaning we as a profession. Um, and they're fairly standardised, you know, and I, I think they might do a fair bit of good, um, but I don't know if we're always getting that true healing. To me, healing is a far deeper journey than um, than just removing the symptoms. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, Karen, it's always such a pleasure speaking with you i always feel like i get a lot out of uh, our conversations and our interactions and i hope that people listening to this have got something out of it as well yeah. um hope it's broadened their horizons and challenged some of their beliefs and perspectives on things yes. and before we before we wrap up today i just wanted to see if there's any final points that you wanted to make no, I think we've kind of covered everything. I just have uh, one little quote from Albert Einstein that I would like to uh, maybe finish with because Please. in speaking of light, so full circle back to where we get, began, which is his quote, which was, for the rest of my life I shall reflect on what light is. And I think that's <laughs> coming from a very wise wise guy, um, mm. you know, just that there is, it's almost like impossible to really understand light, you know, like what is this thing that is magical substance really that is interwoven into to uh, everything. And I think even Rumi, one of Rumi's beautiful lines as well, if you know the poet Rumi, um, your body is woven from the light of heaven. So I think that's another beautiful quote to to see these great thinkers and poets across time have all pondered light and uh what what that means for the human experience so it's been a pleasure to be here today daniel thanks, thanks for having me it's, oh anytime i would love to have you back um, i'm sure there's a few yeah. other topics we can we can go off on tangents on so <laughs> oh for sure i can probably think of a dozen off the top of my head yeah. now it was a it was a great um a great opportunity to sit down with you and put all this out there because as I said we've had many conversations like this in the past and um, every time we have them we're like oh we should have recorded it so we finally did it yes. it's um, <laughs> amazing to to have that happen and yeah hopefully again in the near future we can have uh, a few more of these amazing discussions yeah I have a little podcast which I haven't launched just yet with a friend and it's exactly the same thing because we have these amazing conversations so we decided to uh, record them and interview some people um, and do a little podcast as well because it's just such rich interesting information that always flows between us so I enjoyed this as much as you have so thank you you're welcome. And um, is that podcast up and running yet? Can no, people go and check it out? Not yet, but it will be called Inspire Change. Um, and so we're just in the the kind of, yeah, the uh, beginning stages of getting it on. We've got a few, we've got quite a few recordings done. We just haven't got it kind of up and running yet, but stay tuned.
Awesome. And uh, for anyone else listening that wanted to get in contact with you, because you've got a clinic up the Sunshine Coast, and I know you do a lot of work um, with female reproductive health and um, a few other things. So how do people find you? Uh, yeah, I've got two clinics, so one in Noosa and one in Budrum, and I also do some <clears throat> deeper healing work from my home studio as well. But if probably the best thing is just to jump on my website, which is karenmcelroy.com.au, which is K-A-R-E-N-M-C-E-L-R-O-Y.com.au. So everything is there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Karen. Pleasure. Um, really appreciate your time and we'll chat again soon. Alrighty. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Karen. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.